1999 The Podcast is a production of the Cage Club Podcast Network. For more podcasts on movies, comics, and all things pop culture, head to cageclub.me. To contact us with questions, comments, or just to say hi, send us an email at 1999 at cageclub.me. You can find me on Twitter at ProbablyRealJB and Joey at SoulPopped. And you can follow the show on Twitter at 1999thepodcast. To support the show, please subscribe, rate, and review wherever you listen to podcasts. The show is written, produced, and edited by us. Welcome back to 1999 The Podcast. I am John Brooks. And I'm Joey Lewandowski. Or am I John Brooks without some eyeglasses? I hope I hope not, because that would be really creepy. You never know. You, you, you never know. Well, Happy New Year. And today we begin round three, which is our requests round. Um, Joey, I hope you are enjoying 2023, which it is right now as we are talking. Yes, yes, uh, yes, yes. So far, so good. You sound a little bit different than you normally do. I think this is because you are a victim of the Southwest apocalypse. That I've no, been different that? airline, worse airline, yeah. but I was stuck in Texas for three extra days. I am still down here, so I went out and bought a microphone. So I sound, uh, you know, normal-ish, but also not normal. You know, old normal, not new normal. The old Taylor can't come to the phone because she's dead, but I'm back to life. <laughs> You got your road mic, as they say, as the kids say. I wish I had a road mic. This is just a Logitech H390, baby. Well, thank you for the good people at Logitech for um, coming in on the clutch here. Um, anyway, things can only get better, right? From this point forward. I don't, let, let me get home. I wouldn't let me get say home that. tomorrow yeah, and then fine. let me get through my trip next week as well. And then hopefully I can say things will get better. <laughs> but I have three flights in the next like 12 days. And so I hope that they all take off and land in appropriate time. Well, I hope so too. Uh, but we begin the next round with a movie that just barely missed our first 18. There are a couple of those we've kind of talked about in the past, but this is one that was on the chopping block, so to speak. So it's nice that we are picking up round three with this movie. This is the second motion picture adaptation of the novel by Patricia Highsmith. Today's movie released just under the wire on December the 25th, so another Christmas movie um, that we... Ooh, this does not about. feel like a Christmas movie, I can tell you that much. <laughs> <laughs> Christmas there, is in the movie. Christmas is in it, the movie, but in terms of what you think about when there's a, theater, a movie in theaters at Christmas, <laughs> this is not what I think about. Well, either way, it went on to earn $127 million on a $40 million budget. It stars Matt Damon, a pre-goop Gwyneth Paltrow, Jude Law, Philip Seymour Hoffman, Kate Blanchett, Jack Davenport, and James Reborn, with music by Gabriel Yared and adapted and directed by Anthony Minghella. Today, we are talking about the talented Mr. Ripley. So, Joey, yep. what is the plot of the talented Mr. Ripley. I think we got to get Juhi on the phone. We got to have her do this because I thought this was her job from here on out, especially for a movie. She was so good. She it's was ridiculous. really good. Yeah, so Matt Damon, Matt Damon plays Tom Ripley, who is confused in the first minute of the movie by James Rebhorn, who is the government guy from basically every movie because Matt Damon is wearing <laughs> uh, plausible deniability sir he's, he's always gonna be his you know independence day forever right like that's just who he is to me we'll talk about this later but i love james redborn and and yeah, yeah yeah you're right that's who he is so matt damon is basically a, 
yeah, he's a sociopath who likes to impersonate other people and do voices and forge signatures and things that he admits readily and freely very early in the film and is wearing mm. a Princeton jacket and James Redborn's like, you must know my son, I will pay you $1,000 to go to Italy and bring him home. And Damon's like, you got a kid. And so he goes over there with seemingly ulterior motives, kind of falls in love with Jude Law and the idea of being Dickie Greenleaf and this begins a windfall downfall of mistaken identities, duplicitous identities, murder, jealousy, revenge, more murder, uh, gay trysts, uh, straight trysts, like everything going on. Um, I don't know how detailed we want to get here, but Matt Damon kills multiple people, gets away, feels like he's probably going to be trapped for life, but is on the run, acquitted of all charges by everyone who has power in this movie, a.k.a. the men, and... <laughs> Everybody who crosses him basically winds up dead. Um, yeah. That's I mean, you know, Gwyneth Paltrow's here, Kate Blanchett's here, Philip Seymour Hoffman's here, Jack Davenport's here. You mentioned <clears> all those <throat> names already. Yeah. They're all, you know, large and in charge here. And uh it's there's a lot going on. It's another longer movie, two hours, twenty minutes, as opposed to last season's very short yeah. movies. We are kicking things off with a much longer film this time, but you know, there's a lot that goes on. Did you mean Marge and in charge? Marge um, she's and the only smart person in this movie, uh, <laughs> uh, which is which is interesting. But no, that's a that's a that's a pretty good summary. We'll talk more about the Ripley character later on I, in the episode. I do think it's funny. Like in books, a lot of characters read books, and that's yeah. not true of anything. Like, you know, in movies, people watch movies. Like in horror movies, especially, people watch horror movies. But in here, you know, it's adapted from a book. She's writing a book. It's like, how do you know she's smart? Because she's an author. She's one of us. She's in the club. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you're right. That's so, a good point. Yeah. She, she sees things the rest of us don't because mm-hmm. she's an observant author type. Um, I do like just a real quick aside that I, I, I think the um the the exposition at the beginning of the movie that sort of gets us into the plot is really, really well done because it's very quick. Yep. Um without you, you but you don't you don't like miss anything. It, it doesn't it, like it makes sense and you're like, okay, I see how they got here. But I also like that Dickie's dad is like hey, you're from Wisconsin. Do you know so-and-so? You know, it's like one of those guys right. where he's like, oh, Princeton. So obviously, you know my son. Oh, so and you mean the thing that you've been doing to him? me on the show for the entire run? Oh, Austin, yeah. you know him, right? Right. The joke that I've been playing yes. whenever somebody, yes, yeah. Um, except he does it in real life. And then it's like, have a thousand dollars, which was, I don't know, $28 million. Yeah, enough for a car been. or an icebox or like a, <laughs> a, a, a summer in Italy. An icebox. Anyway, in 1997, Mengele proved himself supremely adept at adapting dense cerebral, cerebral emotional novels with his Oscar-winning The English Patient and with this follow-up. Ripley is an impossible character, largely because he's not a character at all. Part con man, part serial killer, and part mirror of the emptiness of wealth and consumption. He's always played beautifully on the page under Highsmith's pen, but figuring him out in film presents a different sort of challenge as the filmmaker has to present a thesis on who Ripley is that will be both nuanced and defined. Surprisingly, the track record is pretty good. In his 70-ish years of existence, Ripley has been portrayed a number of times, almost always to critical acclaim, but this one is probably the most famous. Star Matt Damon considers this his best film, and fans of Mengele often place this alongside The English Patient and 1990's Truly Madly Deeply, Mengele's first feature, as his best work in his short life. Have you seen either of... I assume you've seen The English Patient. I have not, no. 
And I, oh, wow. I never even okay. heard of the other one. I thought that was a song by Savage Garden. Well, the song by Savage Garden is named after the movie, which is a really, really wonderful romance starring okay. um, Alan Rickman that I think you would really enjoy. Um, the English Patient is a movie you kind of have to see at some point. I mean, you kind of have to have an, an opinion on The English Patient. Um, it's, it's sort of amazing. But uh, have you seen either of his other work aside from this? Anthony Minghella? Yes. I have not. I have not seen Cold Mountain. I have not seen Breaking Event. I have not seen anything he's done other than The Talented Mr. Ripley, which I, okay. we'll get into it in the episode, but this is a movie that I basically I owned for like a decade and finally got around to seeing only a couple years ago. So like <laughs> I had been O for Minghella for a very long time. Well, Minghella, of course, died in 2008 at the age of 54. Um, and of course, as you just mentioned, his other two features that he uh, directed after Ripley, 2003's Cold Mountain and 2006's Breaking and Entering were his last two. Both starred Jude Law and both were scored as well by Gabriel Yared. Ripley was nominated for dozens of awards, including five Oscars and won four awards, a supporting actor BAFTA for Law, a Broadcast Film Critics Association Award for Yared, and National Board of Re Review Awards for Minghella and Hoffman. It holds a 76 uh, Metacritic score and an 85 Rotten Tomatoes score with an 80 audience score on Rotten Tomatoes. Janet Maslin in the New York Times wrote, quote, the talented Mr. Ripley offers a diabolically smart surprises wherever you care to look. Lisa Schwartzbaum in Entertainment Weekly wrote, Minghella makes an enticing, intelligent, well-shaped picture about the extreme perils of class envy and sexual panic. And why not? Christopher Brandon from TNT Rough Cut writes, yeah. quote, <laughs> we are giving them so much airtime. The talented Mr. Minghella. Do they still exist? Are they still around? Are they gotta be. I, I don't know. We really need to look these people up and see if I they want to I don't want to know anything about them. I only want to hear about them here. I, you can do the work outside the show if you want. I have no interest. I really kind of want to know who Christopher Brandon is and have him on the show. Anyway, he says of Mr. Ripley, the talented Mr. Minghella is aping Alfred Hitchcock as effectively as Tom Ripley is doing Dickie Greenleaf. The film made its way to a number of year-end top 10 lists, and while not among them, perhaps its biggest fan was Roger Ebert, who wrote of the movie, quote, this movie is an intelligent a thriller as you'll see this year. It's also insidious in the way it leads us to identify with Tom Ripley. He is the protagonist. We see everything through his eyes. And Dickie is not especially lovable. That means we are a co-conspirator in situations where it seems inconceivable that Tom's deception will not be discovered. He's a monster, but we want him to get away with it. Not everybody was as enamored, however. Hitchcock comes up a lot in the reviews, and most icily, he is invoked in the negative by Amy Talbin in The Village Voice, who wrote, quote, Mengele, a would-be art film director who never takes his eye off the box office, doesn't allow himself to become embroiled in such complexity. He turns the talented Mr. Ripley into a splashy tourist trap of a movie. The effect is rather like reading the National Enquirer in a cafe overlooking the Adriatic. Minghella seems to be aware of the Hitchcockian aspects of Highsmith, but rather than going to the going for the claustrophobia of Strangers on a Train, the most successful Highsmith adaptation, he employs the panoramic mise-en-scene of North by Northwest. Transposing the setting of the film from Highsmith's early 50s to the more affluent late 50s, which, by the way, Joey, ruined it for me. How dare they? <laughs> what a weird thing to 
right about. Mingala references Hollywood's initial infatuation with widescreen cinematography, but gives it a decided 90s gloss. Were it not for the occasional reference to the value of a dollar, $1,000 by six months of footloose living in Europe, as we talked about earlier, you might forget that this is a period movie. Um, that's pretty... I don't think it's like... I, I don't think that's accurate. I think what I'm I'm never surprised by people's ability to find things to complain about about anything. Yeah. But I think this is pretty yeah. firmly because I was thinking, and I don't exactly know why I thought of this, but I was thinking about whether this could be set in modern day and like just the abundance and prevalence of technology would make so much oh. of like his duplicity yeah. impossible, right? No. Like it 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 is yes. could not. This is this is the type of story, and like not that it should or not that it has to. This is the type of story that could not exist in even like the 80s i think right like it's just like no that's not he's over there like i like he left the voicemail machine or you know what i mean like it's i don't know what i find interesting about this review is that i don't i don't think it's egregious necessarily um i think what she's saying is like all rooted in some kind of reality i don't agree with the conclusions um the idea that it's like how you know, 1952 and 1956 were way, you know, like, I don't don't even know what she's talking about there, uh, to be totally honest. But I I, I do appreciate a review that goes out of its way to try and sort of stay rational, (laughs) even if I think this is completely wrong. Um, But yes, to your point, you know, it's, it's kind of like, catch me if you can, where like, that movie couldn't happen today, because of all of the things largely due to the events of that movie that have changed insecurity um, mm-hmm. in the way that like forging a check or forging a passport is not as easy as it used to be. So yeah, you, you watch him like scratch out Dickie's picture and put some of his own in there to make this sort of like, and you're like, well, okay, that makes sense when like anybody could just make a passport and you know, there was no, um, or like DNA testing would have like ended this right. movie immediately. Yes. Right? Yes. <laughs> um, so, so, uh, so yes, no, it feels very period to me, but what do I know? I wasn't alive in the 50s. It's the same kind of thing where you're like was. people at an airport, you're like, Oh, this is pre nine 11. Like it has to be pre nine 11 because like they're, whatever you're doing, <laughs> it's wildly impossible today. Yeah. Um, and, and the one, I know you still haven't seen love actually, but um, I, <laughs> I, I recently read someone say that one of the climactic moments of Love Actually, which openly acknowledges 9-11, like couldn't happen in a post-9-11 airport. And I'm like, that's kind of true. But at the same time, whatever. Suspend your disbelief and just enjoy the movie for God's sake. Amy, I hope you were just having a bad day when you saw Talented Miss Ripley because you are wrong. Whoever you are, wherever you are, I don't even know. Anyway, I have a lot of feelings about this movie, um, as does our guest, who is our first requester who asked us to talk about this movie. And Joey, who is that? Our guest today is the host of There Are No Girls on the Internet and more recently, Internet Hate Machine, Bridget Todd. We'll be right back with Bridget Todd. Bridget, great to have you. Happy New Year. Yeah, Happy New Year. I'm so excited to, to chat. I, um, I I mean, I've seen Talented Mr. Ripley a hundred times, and I, wow. I just rewatched it, so it will be fresh in my mind. Uh, so I'm very, very, very excited. 
You are our Lila Shapiro of Talented Mr. Ripley. I, I don't know if you've listened to our episode about Eyes Wide Shut, but Lila has seen Eyes Wide Shut more than 100 times. Oh my God, um, I need to listen. I actually love that movie as well. Yeah, it's re- she's a really interesting person to hear talk about that movie. But um, yeah, I, <laughs> that's not a movie I could watch 100 times. Uh, I might have seen this close to like, 12 times but like that's about as 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 far as i would i mean okay you say 100 i think with some hyperbole there how many times have you really seen Ooh, it? Oh, great question probably probably more like 50 i've seen it a lot of okay, times okay. oh my god okay all right okay, okay. <laughs> um, fun fact i think of eyes wide shut as a christmas movie so tis the season <laughs> Absolutely. So a couple of things we just mentioned in the introduction that this movie came out on Christmas and that Christmas appears in this movie at some point, although not in a great context. Um, So it's kind of a Christmas movie as well. So, you know, it's our first post-Christmas episode. I guess we're keeping the Christmas spirit alive. Oh, I guess we're not taking my suggestion of becoming 2000 the podcast now that we're in the new year, right? No, we're not. We still have hundreds of movies to cover. Joe. I know, but I thought it'd be really funny if like, it's a new year, new us, new year of movies. I totally no, switch it up. Happening. Yeah. Yeah. We survived yeah. No, 2K so, and now we're in a new year and covering new movies. It's good. It's totally good. So I'm really glad that you said that. The, so 50, that gives it some real context because that's not just a number you throw out there. That's like a number you thought about to say like, yeah, that's how many times I've seen this. Lila also agrees that it's a Christmas movie, that Eyes Wide Shut's a Christmas movie, mm-hmm. and she literally has seen it more than 100 times because she has literally written about the fact that she's seen it more than 100 times for New York Magazine. So, um, yeah, I, God bless her. Um, but, yeah, that's that's a lot of times to see this movie that is not a feel-good or is it? Maybe it is. Maybe. Do you feel good when you watch this, Bridget? Oh, I mean, I, I, so it's not a traditional feel-good movie, but I love a movie that involves, like, twisted, dark, complex characters. And so when I watch it, I I do feel good, despite it not being a feel-good movie. Yeah. I know what you mean. I know what you mean. Okay. I got it. Um, uh, okay. Okay. Uh, <laughs> You left him speechless, Bridget. That, that never happens. John never has. No, I'm thinking about like, do I feel good when I watch Dexter? And I'm like, yeah, I kind of do. So oh, don't we can't do we, the first John, we can't do Dexter seasons. talk. We well, can't do Dexter talk. That was our last podcast. We cannot bring this back to Dexter. We are gonna okay. Well, we're gonna talk about Dexter when we talk about this movie at some point. <sighs> so we kind of have to. That's okay, kind of so. similar to Dexter. It is sort of like a character who does bad things that you. It's it's reasonable to sort of find yourself rooting for in the end a little bit. Yeah, that's true. Um, and that sort of is the conceit that Highsmith created with this character. And we'll talk more about other characters who have been post-Ripley a little bit later on. But let's kind of formally introduce you, shall we? Um, as we're just sort of gabbing about Christmas movies and Mr. Ripley and all that good stuff. Uh, so, Bridget, welcome to 1999 The Podcast. Um, we are... We are Really thrilled to have you. Um, we'll talk a little bit about. I'm, I'll let you do a little bit of your bio, I guess. So you are you are currently the host. Okay, actually, I need to ask you a question before we go too much further on here. Have you formally transitioned? There are no girls on the internet into Internet Hate Machine, or is this like a separate project, or what's going on there? And then you can sort of 
tell your own bio. Oh my God. Great question. This is a question I get a lot. So there are no girls on the internet is my standalone kind of flagship show and internet hate machine is sort of a a spinoff of that show, but it it can be a little confusing. So great question. Uh, But they both explore (laughs) sort of similar themes, but I, I like to think of them as distinct, despite the fact that like, there's a ton of overlap. Okay, because Internet Hate Machine shows up in my "There Are No Girls in the Internet" feed, and so and so I'm like, are we are we fully are we fully transitioned now, or or is or is that was so uh, Tagodi as as it's as it's colloquially known um, is still happening, and Internet Hate Machine is like your 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 side sort of project exactly going on. Okay, awesome, good to know. Um, great. So, how would you inter- introduce yourself to the world? Ooh, God. <laughs> What a question. Uh, I am the creator and host of iHeartRadio's There Are No Girls on the Internet and the host of Cool Zone Media's Internet Hate Machine. And I am someone who loves movies and the internet. <laughs> How was that? That sounds a that little, great. A little like I'm good. reading from a bio. <laughs> I, th- I think we both say the same thing, except caveat, not all movies and not all of the internet. Oh, yes. Um. Only specific. <laughs> Actually, I I mean, I'm like, you know, do you ever watch like trailers for movies and you're like, what kind of dope wants to see that movie? Part of yes. me is like, I would see that. Like, I'm, I'm the kind of person who just enjoys watching a movie, even if it's a bad yeah. movie. So I'm, okay. I might say most not all movies, but definitely not all corners <laughs> of the internet. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's some um there's some bad bad corners of the internet. Um Yeah, so your one of your most recent episodes kind of covered both. You were talking about and I I was really um I'm glad you brought this up because it's one of those things that I also have been spending a lot of time researching and covering conspiracy theories and QAnon and all that good stuff. But the thing that kind of came and went in my radar was cuties. Mm. And your recent episode covers kind of both the internet and movies as far as, as far as that's concerned. Um, I thought that was a fascinating look and a really interesting story that I, that again, kind of came and like passed me by a little bit because I remember all the outrage. Is and then Cuties sort of the Netflix movie that got blowback for supposedly sexualizing little girls? Was it that is. that movie? Correct. Okay, okay. Correct. Um, can you briefly explain, Bridget, like what the deal was there? Yeah, so essentially Cuties was a movie that, um, a, a movie by a French Senegalese black woman director. Um, it was about sort of, it's like a girl, like a girlhood coming, coming of age story about a, a young girl who, who is coming of age in France and she's sort of torn between these two worlds, the world of sort of being this traditional Muslim girl that her mom wants her to be and the world of this like cool older girls who are on this dance team who are really into like twerk dancing and she joins this sort of like kind of inappropriate dance crew and the movie i thought was great like i saw it i thought it was i thought it was great but the movie faced a lot of backlash and and i would argue like 
a misinformation campaign where the director was ultimately accused of breaking the law. She was accused of child of, of making child sexual abuse material. Netflix was accused of the same thing. Lawmakers tried to have the movie banned from Netflix. Uh, there is still ongoing legal action um, mm-hmm. around the movie. And basically, it was an interesting an interesting situation where like, she was accused of things that she never did. Like I saw people put out information saying that the movie included child nudity, which it definitely absolutely does not. Um, and, and it's one of those situations where I think it's totally fine if folks are like, well, I saw the movie and I didn't like it or I thought it was gratuitous or this and that. But to say that she broke the law, like if you Google her name, the auto fill on Google is like, was the director arrested? Is she in jail? And right. I think it goes to right. show like, how the internet can create the conditions where people will be spreading false information about a piece of culture, a piece of media that they clearly have not even seen and how quickly that like spreads and goes viral and kind of becomes true whether or not it's based in reality. Yeah. Um, I have not seen the movie. Uh, I would like to now after having listened to the episode, but it also like what I found really interesting was the point that you make that basically all of this controversy was because of one ad that Netflix put together where they were like, oops, we fucked up our bad. Sorry that we ruined your life director of this Mm -hmm. movie. Um, What can you do? Uh, Which was kind of like an irresponsible way to market the movie, I guess. Oh, absolutely. Um, They like, did her dirty with that poster. But as she really points out, she said she didn't see that. So the poster, so when the the movie first uh, premiered, I think it was at Sundance, the poster is of all of the girls in the movie who are very young, like age 11 to 14, fully dressed, wearing normal street clothes, and they're they're shopping. It's a, it's a, a scene from a shopping montage in the movie. So it's just them dressed normally, holding shopping bags, looking like normal teenagers. Right. The the poster that Netflix used to promote the film is the girls in their like skimpy dance dance outfits. So like short shorts and like cropped shirts, really making like sexualized poses. And so the the director says that she had nothing to do with that poster. She saw it when the world saw it. And so when there was this big controversy about people saying like, oh, this movie is promoting pedophilia or, you know, the abuse of children. She was like, "What are you? All, what are you all talking about? Like, no, like, what are you saying?" And in Netflix's defense, they really did say, "You know, that was our bad. We chose the wrong poster." But the poster that they chose to promote this film, which was not out yet, it isn't even really representative of, of what the film is actually about. Like, it, it right. paints a very different portrait of what actually happens in the movie. Right. Um, well, she's a. Tr- fucking netflix um <laughs> no I, I, and one of the reasons that i wanted to bring that up is i was thinking about that episode uh as i was re-watching ripley and one of the things that joey and i talk about a lot in this show is some of the ways that these movies from this year in their sort of pre-millennial pre-y2k world um how they play today and also like how they would be received today. So, I mean, I think the classic example of this is our American Beauty episode where we uh, do not look favorably on that movie whatsoever. Oh, no? <laughs> Believe it no. or not. 
<laughs> Ripley, believe it or not, um, we, we, we don't like it. Uh, but I was thinking about this and I was like, all right, so let's pretend this came out today. And how would the hate filled Internet react to this movie? And I kept thinking about like, oh, you got to make the character gay and like it's so, you know, woke and all this, sh- whatever. Um, I, I was like, I would be very annoyed if this movie came out in the age of Twitter. Um, and I'm kind of glad that it didn't. And also that it sort of was able to bypass um, the, the period of uh, the Internet hate machine to use your um, your, your podcast title <laughs> as, <laughs> as a way of framing it. Um, we can talk a little bit more about that later on. Uh, I, I'm not sure how, how you how you think about um, that. But let's let's talk. We, one of the things we, we do first is to talk about our first experience watching the movie. I will let you start, Bridget. I know you've seen it 50 times, but if you could go back to whatever year that you saw it the first time, when was that? Why? What year? Et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Oh, the first time I saw it. I, I, don't, I definitely didn't see it in 1999. I was... I, I definitely thought I was super smart and cultured in 99, but I wasn't seeing movies like this. You know, I was I was watching your Drop Dead Gorgeouses. I wasn't watching your talented Mr. Mm-hmm. Ripley's. I must have first seen it in college. I know they played it at my, you know, you know those, um, when, you're, when your college has a movie theater where you can see out-of-date movies for like a dollar. Oh, yeah. I yep. think the first time I saw it was on my college campus. It must have been the early 2000s. And instantly I loved it. I loved it immediately. Um, I, I don't think I truly understood it until watching it a few times you know, later, but I think the first time I, I saw it must have been college campus, campus theater. I probably went back to my dorm and like sat on my bed under a <laughs> Beatles poster and like talked about it and felt very smart and cultured. <laughs> You got that like the 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 kiss outside the Hotel de Ville poster. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, yeah. Okay, I know I know the scene. Um, not to reveal your age, but roughly, uh, how old would you have been in 1999? In 1999, so I was born in 85. So in- okay, so you're right between me and Joey. Oh, yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. So okay. Um, okay. yeah, so I think I think I was a I was I was probably a little young to have seen this and and really appreciated it yeah. in 99. But by yeah. by freshman sophomore year of college this is the kind this was very much my shit like 17 you know, 18 mm-hmm, yeah. like yeah yeah okay. like dark characters homoeroticism <laughs> <laughs> very much my style italian villains mm-hmm, uh like, seaside everyone's yeah, attractive right. and horny <laughs> oh my god are they ever? Even Philip Seymour Hoffman is very attractive in this movie. Yes. Is... Oh, I, I think this is his best role. I, I, I'm a huge Philip Ooh. Seymour Hoffman fan. I think he is at his best when he's playing against type. Like he was often kind of like the schlubby guy who can't catch a break. I always feel like movies like Talented Mr. Ripley or um, Punch Drunk Love, movies where he's, mm. you know, not a schlubby guy who can't catch a break. I always feel like are his best. I think that he's never been better in talented Mr. Ripley. And that is saying something because he is, he was often at his best. That is a hot take to say <laughs> this is the best really Philip is. Seymour Hoffman because there are a lot of opinions out there. Um, I might be on your side, Bridget. So um, hold, hold that, hold that thought. But we've already covered Magnolia on this podcast as well. And that's also one of my favorite Philip Seymour Hoffman roles. Yeah. But 
Um, I, I, everything that you just said, I entirely agree with you. Though I also think that there has never been a more attractive human being in the history of the world than Jude Law in this movie. Oh my god. Or Jude it's Law like, in any movie, basically, really, right? Well, up to a point. Okay, we can talk about that later. But like, obviously, Jude Law is created in a in a laboratory for attractiveness. <laughs> it's like the um, plot of the movie is that Jude Law is so hot that it's ruining everyone's life. Like, it's <laughs> exactly too hot. That's what you should have said, Joey. What is it about? It's about Jude yeah. Law being incredibly hot, and that ruins everything for everybody. And that's kind of the summary. I mean, if I was. A TV guide, that's what I would say in the back, you know. Tauntamus Ripley, four stars. Jude Law's very hot and it ruins everything. Uh, lots of Italian vistas. Um, yeah, that's a really good summary. Joey, uh, I know we've talked, we've you've alluded to this on the podcast. Yeah. Because your other podcast about books. Yeah. Friggin' nerd. Uh, um, so sorry. Your other nerdy book podcast, you watch this movie because no. of book? so i watched it not for the podcast but there was a stretch before how to win the lottery began my co-host over there bob was giving me books of books that he thought i would enjoy that i was going to read and it sort of became the podcast because i would be talking right. to him about the books i'm like why are we not putting this on tape as they say or whatever digital you know bits and bites um and so when we when i read when you had me read the secret history by that on tart uh that has this like long storied history of like almost getting adapted like being optioned three or four times and like it's about wealthy white kids murdering and it's you know that's from the very first page like you know um that there is somebody dead from the very first sentence i think of the book and he's like it's not that this is also based on the book but like the talented mr ripley is kind of that especially because we were you know in, in picturing those characters in that book um you know i was sort of picturing matt damon he's like well if you want and also i think i think jude law and maybe also gwyneth paltrow were maybe considered for an adaptation of that too so like it, it felt like there was a lot of moving parts that kind mm-hmm. of seemed similar like similar ish stories even though i think they were written decades apart and similar ish types of characters and actors who could portray them and i finally watched it after owning the dvd for like a decade and i liked it but i didn't love it and then when i watch it again today for the second time so i'm about 48 behind bridget um i love the movie <laughs> I, I think i think i was so in my head trying to compare it to the secret history which i've now read yeah. twice but you know not in a couple years or a year or two um and I think just taking it on its own and sort of knowing what this was about and the twists and turns to sort of predict and, you know, understand and know where things are going. I think this is a movie that really, really benefits from watching it a second time. I completely agree. I think it's, it's, a, it's a movie like every time I watch it, I notice some, some new detail or some new richness or some new hmm. theme that I hadn't realized before. I, well, I think a lot of movies benefit from repeat viewing, but I think mysteries and sort of twisty turning, like well-constructed ones, not like rug pulled out, like, oh my God, he was actually two people or one person. Even though, <laughs> even though another movie we cover in this podcast, like that that does work, right? But like- Two um, movies, yeah. A couple, yeah. Uh, or that the yeah. same movie, John. Are you sure that they're two different movies? Yes. Oh, who knows? But I think that I think a lot of movies benefit from repeat (laughs) viewing. But I think I would love to hear what Bridget, you know, what what nuances, what new elements and details you pick up on, you know, when you're so familiar with the story, like what do you still learn? As I am about to record a podcast about Tokyo Drift for literally the 14th time, but (laughs) you know, I'm still learning things about that movie. But yeah, what did you learn this time or or recent viewings of this movie? So watching it, so I just I literally 
stopped the movie and then came up here to record. And watching it this time, I was watching it with an eye toward the theme of this podcast, 1999, and thinking about other yes. movies that came out around the same time. I read a list of what was going on politically, globally. And something that I was really struck by in this time watching it was, you know, obviously Tom is impersonating, is an, is an impersonator, but the ways that all the other characters in the movie are also kind of low-key impersonating others, right? And so, you know, Dickie is impersonating someone who is not super wealthy. Like, he's pretending to be this bohemian guy. He's he's trying to sort of pretend, like, I'm so cool. I love being in the Italian countryside. And really, it's like, you're a wealthy guy with lots of money, and you, you know, you maybe, you're kind of pretending to be this, like, bohemian living this bohemian lifestyle and you know the the way like like meredith logue is like oh i'm also traveling under a different name the way that mm. all of these wealthy people are all kind of in their own way pretending or impersonating in, in a lot of the same ways that tom are and it really got me thinking about how in 1999 i do feel like we were really interested in a cult as a culture in investigating like who are we? Or, or am I living a lie? Is everyone around me pretending? You know, movies like American Beauty or, you know, um, Fight Club or Donnie Darko. Like, <laughs> this idea of, like, the world is bullshit and we're all living a lie. And, like, who am I? And who am I in the world? And who am I to others? I think we were really, really interested in asking those questions of ourselves, but also the world around us. I, I'm so glad you said that because now, well, not that glad because now I want to retroactively put this in our first 18 um, <laughs> because so, so for context, like Joey and I, like when we started like plotting this out, we, 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 we were sort of, we wanted to put together a list of 18 movies because we want to do nine and nine for, no, know, no, no, it wasn't going to be 18. We, we only did 18 because we couldn't figure out a 10th. We both That's ranked That's 10 true. and we had a list of That's nine. True. We're like, which of these other nine do we want to put in there that's true i was like oh there's three nines in the year why don't we just do nine we're like all right that's fine that's just what we're doing like there's no rhyme or reason other than no there's a lot of nines it's cute and gimmicky but 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 i i this one was on my initial list and then i i bumped it off just because i couldn't really justify it quite within the the context of like movies that are definitively from that year or from that era that like really feel like that they are part of something culturally that was going on and Bridget you just completely destroyed that <laughs> that theory um because I think you're absolutely right and I think that's actually something in in my my most recent rewatch of this that I also noticed was because Tom is very explicit about that when he kills Dickie spoiler alert oh my god uh, I know when he kills Dickie which happens in the first less than half of the movie Jude Law is in less than half of this movie, people. Um, when he kills him, he's like, I never lied to you. I was always honest. I'm like, oh, you kind of were. Because like the first thing you said to him was like, I impersonate people and I'm a liar. Yeah. Um, and 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 he's like, you were the one who was always pretending to be someone that you're not and so on and so forth. I'm like, yeah, it's kind of it's kind of true. Totally. Like, it's, that's, that's not a bad point. Totally. And in the scene right before that, when Dickie and Tom are at the jazz club and Tom drops this like what what should be a huge bombshell that I don't like jazz. I learned about jazz to ingratiate myself to you. I never was in school with you. This is all been a big scam. 
Dicky, oh, he's he's so enamored with the drum, the, the drummer. He doesn't it doesn't even register what a huge bombshell yeah. that is. And I think it's because Dicky is pretending to be somebody he's not, and everybody around him is low key doing that. And so I think it doesn't really register what a like what he is what what Tom is actually revealing. And I think it's because he's the biggest perpetrator of them all. He's the biggest faker. Well, what's funny is that later in the movie, when he meets back up with Kate Blanchett, and she's talking about how like it's so refreshing to finally know, meet someone who like despises money, having had it all their life, and then, like what do they like? The next scene is literally them spending a lot of money. Like they're all frauds, they're all phonies, they're all like saying one thing and doing the opposite. Like they get along with each other so well because they're all in the same like duplicitous self-loathing, but also like everyone else is worse than us because everyone else is poorer than us. Exactly, and it it kind of makes it like. What a good group to scam and lie to and like manipulate. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> it's like you could really make a killing. <laughs> uh, the people who are like of the Baltimore logues, you're like, yeah, fuck you. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I, well, that's, that's also, I think, part of kind of Highsmith's um, shtick was that, uh, you know, again, we mentioned in the intro that she was sort of a person who was not necessarily beloved by everybody she met uh and was a bit of a prickly kind of personality um but also it seems like would have no fucking time for the elon musks of the world who we all on twitter like want to sort of internet murder you know what i mean totally. um and and the, the the idea of kind of the revenge fantasy of the of the people living the high life while you're this very talented pianist who nobody fucking cares about um, while I think all of us are like, well, let's not go that far. We still kind of, we root for Tom in a certain way because we identify with him and that she pushes us to identify with him um, because we are also all frustrated by the system and all of that shit. I, I don't know. It's a very, I, I again, you are right. It is a far more relevant story than I, uh, especially for the time that I maybe kind of realized at the time. And I am also, I'm also thinking about how in '99, but we didn't have Twitter, we didn't have Facebook, we didn't have social media as we know it now. But we did have the beginning of the like AOL chat rooms and like Yahoo, whatever, where we are beginning to craft a internet identity that is not our own um and i think that is something that we were sort of playing with that makes this movie relevant in a in a in a different sort of way for for the emerging kind of internet subculture that's happening at the same time oh my god i have never thought about that before and I, like my when i was watching this my partner was like what is it about this movie that you connect with so much and i couldn't articulate it but i think that's exactly part of it is that so much of my early internet experiences that were tied to sort of sorting out my identity involved getting on chat rooms and lying about yeah. who i was and yes. watching tom experience <laughs> freedom through that same kind of lying about who you are lying about your upbringing where you went to school who you are in the world there there is a kind of freedom to that, a freedom of exploration. And somebody like Tom, who is this, you know, bathroom attendant piano player living in a, a basement apartment above his screaming neighbors, you know, and, and putting his shirt, washing at the same shirt every night on the line, he 
doesn't have a carefree life that lends itself to the the freedom of exploration. And it's it's through his subterfuge and forgeries and lies that he gets a taste of what that freedom would be like. It's it's I can definitely mm. definitely identify with that on my early internet experiences for sure. Joe, any thoughts? No, I think you guys are much smarter about this kind of stuff. I just I, <laughs> I kind of got lost just listening to the two of you, so I have nothing smart to add. I think you're both spot on, though. I like that read of it. I, I do have a question for both of you. So you were talking about yeah. how this movie would play today. I totally yeah. agree that it, it would be kind of insufferable to read everybody's takes on Twitter. <laughs> but do you think there'd be a, 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 a kind of, like, you know how we love like an Anna Delvey or an Elizabeth Holmes, like our, as a culture, we're fascinated by scammers who get them, who, who who wedge themselves into the world of the wealthy and then take advantage of them. Do you think that Tom Ripley would enjoy that same kind of, um, you know, that same kind of view that we'd be like, well, I like him. He says he's scamming the rich. We love that. Or no. I, I think what we would for sure see, and there's no reason that this isn't happening other than people just don't watch this movie as much as they should anymore is that we would have a lot more Matt Damon gifts in the world of like him <laughs> shaking the the martini shaker and then all of a sudden just stopping or him smiling suspiciously or whatever. Um, I think that this, there's a lot of things he does and a lot of faces he makes that they, people would be able to use as reactions to things. Um, but they still could. It's just if it was out today, like on Netflix, people would be screen capping it to death right now. So I think yes. Um, I think there would be a lot of toxic stuff, as you have both mentioned in the intro in this and right now. But I think there'd be a lot more of just like sort of uh, what does Tom Ripley have to think about that? Mm. Well, I think that the 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 proxy for Ripley today is Joe Goldberg. Right. And the 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 success of you um, and and sort of the way that you recasts Tom Ripley in a kind of a modern context is that very thing happening? Like you'll you, you certainly see like Joel Goldberg gifts more than you see Tom Ripley gifts. Um, but but yeah, and and like there's 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 you know Highsmith created I think something that people have adapted in different contexts after the fact, but that was unique to Ripley at the time and has has proven to be something that is readaptable. Um, Again, in the case of something like Dexter or Joe Goldberg, um, where you have the sort of serial killer who's like not your typical serial killer and kind of kills people that you kind of want to kill, uh, <laughs> right? And like, but but also sort of reflects all of your darkest instincts, but also all of society's darkest darkest instincts, and and. Um, you know, I, I don't think it ever is quite as successful and um, and universal as it is with with Ripley, because I think as as Bridget is saying, like this is a, a novel that was written in the mid fifties, that the movie came out in the late nineties, and yet there's themes here that still sort of are applicable to to a lot of the things that we endure right now. Um, you know, whereas when you see a sort of knockoff of it in the case of Joe Goldberg, right, it's it's sort of it's very specific to the time and, and um, a little bit different. But um, I don't know. I, I What do you like? So, Joey, we've talked about Dexter ad nauseum. I know you've seen uh. you as well. Um, Bridget, what do you think of like the legacy of the Ripley or, or the the. Uh, the influence of the Ripley character on this the sort of the anti-hero who murders the parts of society that we hate. 
<laughs> right? As like, um, as a pop culture kind of meme. Yeah, it's so funny because I was really wrestling with whether or not Tom is a just like a monster, like a ruthless villain. And I, for, for whatever it says about me, I have a lot of sympathy toward Tom. I see him as a victim and a villain. And I think yeah. it, it kind of goes back to what you were saying of, I think that it's commonplace today to have these complex villain-ish characters that you kind of root for. But I think when, it, when Highsmith was writing this, like I, I don't know that that was like a common a common trope. And I think, you know, the end of this movie, is, is it okay to talk to like jump and talk about the end yeah, yeah, a little yeah. bit? Yes. The end yeah, of, we assume everybody's seen the movie okay, that we're watching. Perfect. So, yeah. so at the end of the movie, when Tom has to kill his partner and he's he's finally like that scene when they're on the boat and they're shot from behind and they clearly are he finally has this intimacy that he always wanted from Dickie and was clearly never going to get and yeah. that choice when he has to kill that partner to to keep this ruse that he has built going and you see that his all of his manipulation is really built a prison for himself and i feel for him like i think the same system that you know that he has been kind of trying to buck to make his way in to like be above his station is the system that keeps him locked into this prison of loneliness that he is screaming to get out of and so by the end of the movie i am very sympathetic to tom because i do sort of see him as a victim of of larger forces despite the fact that he's killed what like three people and probably would kill a th- uh, kill Marge <laughs> if things had been mm. different. I agree. I like there's, I think the thesis that Mingela is making about this character is really encapsulated there um, where he's making it clear that it was never really a homoerotic thing when it came to Dickie with, with Tom, it was never really about intimacy or love. It was about wanting to be as successful at creating a persona as Dickie was Mm. Um, that, that Tom doesn't believe that people really exist, but that he believes that people are good at performing a certain character. And he was jealous that Dickie was as good as, as, as this and wanted to be close to him, right. In order to sort of feed off of that energy. And when Peter um, actually sees Tom for who he is and loves him for who he is, he can't handle it. And again, like in the sort of internet sphere version of this, with, with the, you know, our our sort of internet selves and our and our not our offline selves, and this sort of, um, uh, you know, tension that we have between those two things, there is something really kind of profound and heartbreaking about that, right? When you see people kind of who have this internet persona who are exposed, or as you know, Elon says, doxed um, for for you know information that's available to everybody, right? Um, and, and how desperate they are to maintain this sort of persona they build up um, that is really affecting and, 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 and profound and, and heartbreaking that, that like, yes, Tom cannot stand to be loved. Like he cannot stand to be loved for who he is because he doesn't believe he is that thing, right? And like, that's, that's the kind of enduring, I think, um, thesis here. Exactly. I think it's... I think it's interesting to wonder if he actually starts and ends the movie in different places or if he's the same as he, because I don't know that he actually grows or changes. I don't think so. We don't know where he comes from. We don't really know where he's going other than somewhere similar to what he's just done over these past, 
you know, a few weeks or months <clears throat> or however long this, you know, elapses over. But like, I think he's just, you know, unstuck in the world and trying to figure out, trying to find something, whatever it is that clicks for him. And he maybe gets close, but doesn't actually find the thing. Yeah, I completely agree. I don't think that by the end of the movie, he's had some kind of transformation. I think he's emotionally kind of the same person. And I also think, you know, when you were speaking earlier about this idea that everyone is performing, the way that he is able to see, I think he's in love with the way that Dickie is able to perform so well. There are two scenes that really stick out to me. The scene where, um, his the, the woman that he's sleeping with drowns herself and mm. and tom is like oh um weren't you like isn't that her fiance like he's clearly knows like you were sleeping with this woman and now she has died by suicide like asking the question that he gets so angry because i think it's the the you know cracks in this persona shining through right before tom murders dicky on the boat when he's like oh you follow your cock around first you're you know you're you're <laughs> sleeping when you're talking to women and then you're going to be marrying Marge. Like, which is it? You want to play the sax? You want to play the drums? Which is it? I think what he's really calling out is the, the ways that Dickie performs, the ways that he is not who he says he is. And I think that the same way that that is, that the idea of being seen for who he is is very threatening for Tom, having that called out is supremely threatening to Dickie. I think I think I think I th- I don't think it's 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 easy to overstate just how threatened everyone in this movie is kind of by everything, right? Like they've yeah. never been challenged. Like I think that there's like a throwaway joke in here about like, do you type all your letters? He's like, yeah, I, I you know I can't spell and I can't write. It's the it's the benefit of a first class education, right? It's like <laughs> they've mm-hmm, never had mm-hmm. to actually do anything. So I think anybody challenging them in any way is going to not know how, other than maybe Marge, other than maybe Gwyneth Paltrow, who seems to have like a head on her shoulders. I think I think all the dudes in here are just like shaken to their core by everything and everyone. Yeah, very. I, I like how you put that. Every all the men in this movie are very threatened. Like mm-hmm. everyone is feeling threatened all the time. How old are they supposed to be in this? Like, are they like twenty five ish? Yeah, they're like. Well, they've been out of Princeton for a couple of years, so like okay. 24, 25 okay. Okay. Uh, 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 ish. But um, no, and I think that there was an element of it. Like I'm trying to thought. Like I've been trying to think over the years of like does this appeal to everyone all the time? I like, I knew why me in my twenties, this, I was obsessed with this and told other people to watch it. Um, but I've, I've, I've struggled with kind of the universality of it. And I think the sort of internet angle um, uh, helps that. Um, and I think one of the things that sort of Highsmith wants to present is that we are always kind of performing and it's a very kind of bleak and cynical view of humanity (laughs) that that like nobody everybody just wants to believe what they want to believe and even if you think about the way that tom gets away with murder at the end like his dad is just sort of like i'm going to believe the narrative that's most convenient for me and the private investigator they hire is like here's why it happened. And like, you're like, yeah, okay, fine. That makes sense. And Marge is the only one that's like, no, you murdered him. Right. But she's just a hysterical Um, woman. (laughs) Um, And so I've, I've sort of thought of like, I, I, again, like I knew why when I was a 20 year old white male, while I was like, yes, I get this. It's profound. Right. Um, That, that resonated with me. But as I've watched it over the years, um, again, thinking about sort of the way that, 
I, I guess that that sort of the revelation is that Highsmith was a lot more bleak than I even conceived of, and I'm and I'm and I'm kind of thinking that maybe she's right, and that we are just all sort of fake <laughs> all the time. Um, so I don't know. Like I know, like Bridget, I know this sort of is a is a movie that you love and like makes you feel good in some sort of way. So like. <laughs> We've 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 talked about how terrible and awful and, and bleak it is, but like, what's what's good about it? What makes you feel good? Oh, the fashions, <laughs> <laughs> the music, Matt Damon singing "My Funny Valentine," oh my which he actually did. Oh my god. Can we talk about that? Because, okay, so I am obsessed with Chet Baker um, independently of this movie. And <laughs> Chet Baker's music, like, really beautifully frames the film. Matt Damon doing, like, that when Matt Damon is playing the piano and playing My Funny Valentine. Yeah. And it's, it's yeah. Matt Damon as Tom Ripley, as Chet Baker. And Chet Baker himself was sort of doing a bit of a performance, like, this white musician sort of, like, not like kind of mimicking like a like a black jazz singer um that that kind of style it's like fucking inception like layers of performance within performance the music in this movie is like i own the soundtrack it's so good yeah yeah well gabrielle yard is amazing uh and I, it's like yeah the the whole the whole the whole soundscape of it is 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 phenomenal no you're right i mean obviously like to look at this movie is fantastic and like the italian landscapes are fantastic and the you know the camera panning to like glistening ocean with like star you know sunlight glistening on the water it's all amazing and beautiful and gorgeous to look at and everybody is incredibly hot and like what do you guys think of his bright neon swim trunks that like seem wildly out of <laughs> I fashion. love I only noticed this the first like I maybe have noticed it in the past but today I was like holy shit those what the fuck is going on cuz like they're they're no longer like in like the, the cut is no longer modern in any way but I'm no. like, you look around like no. everyone's wearing the same swimsuits so i'm like okay that at least is normal but like he is going out of his way to be like you know noticeable and it's man it's a choice and it's working i think yeah the scene he's like holding like loafers and kind of runs across the sand <laughs> past jude law and gwyneth yeah. paltrow it is it is I mean, for the first time, I mean, again, I've seen this movie 50 times. When I watched it today, I burst out laughing. And he's so he's so white. It's just a very, it's a lot of choices have been made. He's, it's a primer. He's wearing a primer. Which is, that's, 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 that's why. It's an undercoat. That's, that's what's happening there. Um, I love that. I love that scene. It's very funny. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I agree. Uh, you mentioned, so this is your favorite Philip Seymour Hoffman performance, and I, I can't knock you for that. Um, we do have to, I think, talk about the cast here because it's hard to find a weak link. Um, to me, this is my favorite, and it's, I know it's Matt Damon's favorite performance, but it's, it's, it's certainly the movie where even after Goodwill Hunting, I was like, oh shit, this guy can do some stuff um i am always mesmerized by his performance i've seen a number of other ripley's and he still is my favorite um we'll come back to that a little bit later on so aside from philip seymour hoffman and your super hot take that this is his best performance um which is going to get you a lot of hate mail or <laughs> whatever bring it on people i'll defend it yeah. all day <laughs> I think it's perfectly defendable. Um, and aside from Jude Law, who we can just be like, all right, that's in a different category altogether. Um, who else really stands out to you here? Definitely Kate Blanchett. I I Oof. I have like a huge like I I'm not gonna say it's her best performance because 
I I see. I love her and everything. She's so good. It's not even but, her best Patricia Highsmith performance, right? Like, yes. let's, be, let's be real about that. <laughs> she is like, did not come to play in this movie. And I think there's something about the way that she that she is in this movie where you really get the sort of yearning of Marge. Like, like we talk a lot about what it is that that Tom wants and what the other characters want, but. The way that Kate Blanchett plays, or I said March, uh, her, her yearning as um, Meredith, mm-hmm. she has this like, not desperation, but you can just tell that this is a young woman who wants something. You know, she's she really wants the the she's really in love with the idea of her being with somebody like Dicky, and I think that Kate Blanchett plays it with this really beautiful understated quality where, you know, I don't. I, I think a lot of actresses could have gone a little over the top and made Meredith kind of, you know, annoying or shrill or something. And Kate Blanchett just, com- just brings a, a level of tenderness to the character, even though it's a, a pretty minor character. I think that she really finds a way to flesh it out, as she always does, because she's an icon. Yeah. So real, real quick about that character, a couple things. One, um, that character was not in the book. That was a character created by Anthony Minghella for the movie. And Minghella, when writing the character, was like, I'd like Kate Blanchett to play this, but it's a <laughs> tiny character and she's not going to do it. And so we called Kate Blanchett and she was like, would you be interested? And she's like, I want to work with you. So absolutely, I will do this character who's in the movie for 10 minutes. Um, so yeah, she he didn't think she would play a minor character and it was really only i think this again i don't know the last time i I saw this movie a lot (laughs) within the first couple years it came out i don't know when the last time i watched it was certainly not since i've been in my 40s i'll say that much but like um you're how old sorry old oh (laughs) i'm old uh i'm squinting at the screen right now no um i never really quite realized at least consciously of the way that Meredith and Marge merge into one single character as well, where I'm like, wait, which one's which now? Mm-hmm. I can't remember. Like, I literally watching this can't remember which one's which. And like, when I see the back of their, especially in towards like in the Rome scenes, when they have the same hairstyle and you're like, who's Kate Blanchett and who's Gwyneth Paltrow? I can't remember. Well, and like, they don't have the easy go to the Clark. Like they make the Clark Kent Superman joke about the glasses, right? Like that's the way to tell Absolutely. which character yeah. Matt Damon is playing, but they don't have that. It's like, right. who, which, which of these impossibly beautiful blonde women is this? I don't know. And I think it's very clever because both of them think they're in love with Dickie Greenleaf and they're both equally wrong (laughs) for different reasons. You know what I mean? Like they both think they're in this committed relationship with this guy and they're both wrong for for different reasons. And I think that's a really fascinating um, addition for Minghella to throw into the plot line to sort of sell his thesis of this story. And I, I think that's... Um, yeah, I, I like. I will say, Bridget, that like I always think of Kate Blanchett when I think of this movie. Like it's she's like that character Same. always stands out to me. Um, so, so that she's such a minor character and has such a major impression i think and the same with philip seymour hoffman um is is pretty pretty telling i mean how good they both are while we are on characters who are on screen for less than 10 minutes john do you want to gush yeah. about philip baker hall um no except that i love him dearly and i he's again as i as i said he's one of those characters who i'm like he's only in it for this long like every time i watch it i'm like really that's it that's all we get from him but like it's just perfect and, and fantastic and he presents the character who is like 
we're all idiots. <laughs> but like, but, but we pretend to know what we're talking about. And so here's the narrative that we're going to sell. And I'm a private investigator and look how interesting and, and authoritative I am. And it's a great, it's a great, it's a great tiny role. He has um, one of my favorite lines in the movie when Tom, when he's talking to Tom and Tom is like, oh, I can see my apartment from here. And he's like, I don't care about the small talk. I don't care to hear it. I don't care, I don't to care for it. bullshit. <laughs> <laughs> it's so good. Oh man. Um, oh, yeah. Anyway, uh, Joey, who's, who's, who's your, who's your standout? Aside from James Redborn, I think it's what you. I think it's what you talked about. Did you have a James Redborn story that you wanted to say, or no? Because I brought him up in the beginning about the Independence Day thing, and I think you said you were going to tease something later or something like that. Did you have more to say about? No, him? I. I just. I loved. So he. He died. Uh, I guess ten or so years ago. I think right around the same time as Mangella. I think actually, if I'm not wrong. But um, great, great character actor. But you're right that he's always that same guy. Um, and he's kind of that guy here, but like just a slight variation of that guy of like the government official. Um, but, you know, this sort of like whatever. He's a rich person who can just send Matt Damon, who may or may not have known his son at Princeton, and like to Italy for whatever reason. But he is he was such a great character actor. And um, this and Independence Day are the two that really stand out to me as like the ones where I just, I will always remember his, his lines and, um, you know, Independence Day where he goes, well, not all of it, sir. Right. The whole thing about <laughs> Area 51. It's like, that's not entirely true, sir. He's great. Anyway, um, go ahead, Joey. Who no, do you I like? think, I mean, I think it's like the seven or eight people that we've talked about a lot. It's the, it's the four main ones, then Philip Seymour Hoffman and James Redborn and yeah. Philip Baker Hall. Like, it's, I also do love the Italian housekeeper who, like, blows his cover. Like, he, she's the reason <laughs> that Philip Seymour Hoffman dies. I and the dies. Italian inspector who's, like, really, who, who they fire for being too competent yeah. because they think he's incompetent because they he, like, figures shit out. And they're like, no, that can't be right. Yeah. Um, I love that guy who's like a very stereotypical like Italian movie inspector. Um, but it's it's a lovely little little performance there Something as well. Something that I love about the housekeeper and really a couple of the <laughs> other Italians in this movie are the way that the plot hinges on these Italians not being able to tell white guys apart, like white American yes. men. <laughs> like they all look alike. <laughs> That's him, right? I love it. Which is also like, that's funny. And I love that as well. But it's also kind of, again, part of the point is that like these like Dickie and Tom are both people like white dudes who are kind of conventionally attractive, even though, you know, Matt Damon is made to look kind of ugly. And, and Tom and, and Dickie comments on that at some point, like in the in the movie. But the idea of like they're basically just white dudes who are playing rich white dudes playing around in Italy. But like that's that's it. That's all they are. That's, there's nothing else to them. So there's no reason to sort of investigate their identity beyond that. You know, this the same theme is kind of played around with an American psycho, right? Where it's like it doesn't really matter. Who cares? Is he dead? Who gives a shit? Like they're a dime a dozen. Like these are all the same people. It doesn't matter if this guy died or not. Um, all of these white dudes 
who work in Wall Street are literally the same person, and it doesn't fucking matter if one murdered a different one. Like, who cares? It's we can we can we can move on without that. I cannot believe that because after watching this today, I was thinking like I want to watch this in conjunction with American Psycho because it's. I exactly, used to watch them back to back all the yes, time. They yeah. have they're so the themes are so similar of like these yeah. white dudes are all interchangeable. Paul Bateman, <laughs> Patrick Allen, eh, all the kind of the same like. Like, is, I, mean, I think it's trying to say something about like masculinity or something. I don't know, but it's well, it's such a funny a funny thing. You know, that's it the is. Bennington College connection, like that. Or, like that's like the whole like that's this kind of. I guess I was putting Donna Tartt in this that she didn't write this, but like it's the whole like where Brett Easton Ellis went to college and like the whole. It's a very specific type of upper white middle class upper class, whatever, like, yes, they're all, all of those things, all of those Brett Easton Ellis books, all that whole universe and things that like, I, like, I, I realized I had like, I thought I had a point and then I realized that I was conflating the novel with the book, but yes, it's it, <laughs> they're all the same people. They're all terrible people you don't want to deal with, but you like reading about and watching because they're, they're fascinating on screen or in the pages. So. Yeah. I have yeah. to say, you just blew my mind a little bit. I, I had not picked up on that Bennington college kind of universal universal vibe <laughs> but oh my god you are totally right yeah the, B- it's all the, the, the bcu yeah. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> there was a podcast about it too there was a whole podcast about the writer scene from there and i think that people there's a podcast about everything i know i know like yeah. but we're the only one about but only one mm-hmm. about this topic yeah <laughs> um okay Br- bridget before we go on to our last set of questions for you um sometimes our guests write notes before they come onto the show. Is there anything else that you noted that you want to talk about? I hear papers ruffling. Oh, I have a um, legal pad. <laughs> go for it. Let me just flip through and see if I if there's anything else. I, oh, well, one thing that I, I was interested in is <clears throat> sort of this film takes place in 1958. Like, it does seem to be an interesting time culturally where, you know, there's this sort of 50s vibe of like, you know, um, Dickie makes fun of Marge for being into Perry Como at one point, and like Dickie is yeah. very interested in jazz, and Tom is really interested in these like very traditional American. You know, like he's interested in piano music, opera, like not interested in this 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 burgeoning counterculture. Is there something going on there that like there's something about that that movie taking place in 1958 that is really <laughs> a, about like what's happening in the culture? Is that anything? Is that something? You should you should talk to Amy Tobin from the Village Voice, <laughs> who, who would one hundred percent who complained in her review that the movie takes place in the late fifties, not the early fifties. And Joey and I were like, "What? Who fucking cares? Like, what's the, what's you know the big what that difference?" Reminded me of that I did not mention in the intro. It's that Mister Show sketch or about you know where Bob and David can't <laughs> yeah, get along because yes. I'm a big fan of Star Wars and New Hope, but you're a fan of Empire. You're an Empire Strikes, Strikes Back <laughs> guy, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> you grew up in the mid seventies. I grew up in the late seventies. Oh my god! Yes. <laughs> I think the serious answer to your question, uh, Bridget, is that is that Mangella wanted to include exactly the things that you're talking about, kind of culturally, into his movie, and so relocated it slightly later than Highsmith does for that reason. Um, that we're on the verge of the 1960s, and of course, like, er, like 1960 is when everything starts to change and the Beatles happen and everything else. Um, and and there's, a, there's a moment in time, not unlike 99 versus 2000, Ooh. right, that, that is... Um, that is being played out here. So um, I don't know the exact answer, but from the context clues that I've gotten, I think that's pretty much it. 
this is that's that's very informative because I I really was like. Like, I don't know, something about it being in 1958 just really struck me as like, what an interesting yeah. time in culture to have this all be unfolding. And it, it, yes. it is sort of like 1999. I hadn't thought about that either. But yeah, it really it really all comes back to 1999, doesn't it? Makes it even more of a 99 movie than, again, I realized before we started talking to you. So um, I wish we talked to you earlier. You would have been able to force this into our initial eight. But I'm glad we're starting off round three with with uh, with this movie. Oh, so. my God. Me, too. Anything else in your notes that you want to... Uh, the, the line that Freddie has, or that... Um, the peeping has, line? Oh, hey, hey, Fr- Tommy, how's the peeping? Mm-hmm. I told, <laughs> my partner was like, you need to find a way to sneak that into the conversation so they can use it in their outtakes. <laughs> like, say it real weird. Hey, Tommy. Well, at, the end, at the end of every episode, I tease what the next thing is going to be. And I said that for this one, and John cracked up because like, it's a, such a hyper-specific line. But we have another show <laughs> on the network here that followed. Not expecting it. That yeah. did all of Philip Seymour Hoffman's movies, and that was the line that they just fixed it on for good reason. And so they just said it over and over and over again on that episode. So it's been it was burned into my brain even before I saw the movie. And so it's it's so good. It's so wonderful. It's it's almost disappointing, if only because the scene where he confronts Tom is is one of not only the best scenes in the movie, but the best scenes that Philip Seymour Hoffman's ever performed. Oh my god, the and piano part when he's like the piano hitting part. the keys. Oh Jesus mwah, Christ, it's mwah, so good. Mwah, chef's kiss. I know. Oh <laughs> unbelievable. The only other thing that I have in my notes that really struck me is the way that like Jude Law talk about like or Jude Law, Dickie, talk about and, and kind of somebody who's impersonating somebody else, like he loves this idea of like, I'm Mr. Italy. I have a Vespa, blah, blah, blah. <laughs> and then when yeah. the woman that he's sleeping with dies by suicide, all of a sudden how quickly it flips. It's like, oh, these people oh, are primitive. Like, where's the ambulance? Point. Like, it's so, it reminds me so much of people who love to think of themselves as well-traveled or cultured or interested in other cultural experiences, but how it takes just that one thing for him to be like, actually, like he's so disgusted by the way that the Italians are handling this. And he sort of becomes disgusted with um, where he's staying in Italy in general. Like he's like, oh, it's time to leave after that whole thing with her. You know, that was so bad. Like it's really, really, I think it really struck me and it makes me think of how many people go to different cultures and are happy to experience those cultures when it's fun and it's drinks and it's jazz clubs, but not so happy to experience the other parts of the culture that might not connect as much with them. Wow. That's a, God damn, that's a really good point. Um, I noticed that scene a lot more profoundly this time than I ever have before. And I wasn't really quite sure why. And I think you just completely articulated it, which is that whole like, fuck it, it's ruining my illusion of how nothing matters here and what a primitive country this is and how could the ambulance... And she's like, well, she was already dead. (laughs) He's like, too bad, like, you know, get, you know, she's like, I think she was dead by the time they got here. She kind of drowned in the ocean uh, and he's still pissed off about it. But even more so, like, beyond just the fantasy that we have of these, like, forgotten places there's an element of like the the sort of maga theory there as well of like loving america for the things that it is in your imagination but like isn't really and doesn't really exist and and again it's like 
the idea of a place being a performance as much as a person being a performance, right, is, mm. is sort of being um, exposed in that scene as well. That's such a good way to put it. Yeah, I think that the, the vision of Europe and Italy as this carefree place where nothing matters, how, how, <laughs> how, that, how this movie shatters that illusion. Yeah, unlike Love Actually. <laughs> Still haven't seen it, John. Between the intro and now, I have not seen Love Actually. No, that's Portugal, but same fucking thing. I know, isn't that ridiculous? Um, it's, we talked about that a lot in the last episode. <sighs> I'm sorry. <laughs> okay, so um, before we go, a couple of trivia questions for you guys. I'll see if you know the answers to these. Bridget, I'm going to let you go first to make it easier. Uh, Tom Ripley has been portrayed by a number of actors over the years. Name one other. Was it Ed Asner as Santa in Elf? I know this is her answer. Joey, it is is not your turn. I know, but I also don't know the answer to this question. This is the easy one, so I am doomed for this quiz. I'm just trying to get a wrong answer in early. Ooh, I do not know. Um, I don't know. I don't know. (laughs) I I, I, I feel like I should know this. I'm, I'm, I'm loyal to my one true... Yeah, Ripley. you're one for Ripley. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Can you can you Joey, can you give us a hint? Is this the first time? No, not even close. Uh, this is actually the the first. This is a remake of another adaptation of the Towns of Mr. Ripley. Ooh. The first one was in 1977. All right, Bridget, we can figure this out together. So 1977. Who's the? Man? You won't know this. It's, it's a oh. French actor. You won't know it. But mm. there is a. Two very famous actors, and I'll give you a hint, Joey. One of them we have talked about ad nauseum on this podcast. We've talked about a lot of people ad nauseum on this podcast, though. In a single episode, we talked about him a lot because he is definitely the main character. Oh, oh, can you give me a hint about that episode? (laughs) It's from Um, 1999. Okay. The ca- the actor's name is in the movie's title. How about Wait, that? John Malkovich. Okay, of course. Yes. Yeah. So being uh, John Malkovich played Ripley in uh, Ripley's Game. How old was he out. when that came out? I think it was two thousand five. So he was old. Um, okay. Wow. Okay. So it's a it's a later yeah. Ripley book. Okay. So Ripley's Game takes place quite a while after Talented Mr. Ripley. So he's 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 pretty much the right age for that. But the other actor to play Ripley. In an adaptation also of Ripley's Game, um, although this goes back to the 70s as well, uh, as in my other favorite Ripley movie, directed by Wim Wenders, uh, the German director, um, starring also Bruno Gantz, uh, is Dennis Hopper um, as Ripley in uh, The American Friend, which is a really, really, really great. So both Ripley's Game and The American Friend are the same book. um, Wait, so that's your favorite Ripley movie, that one? Aside from this one, uh, uh, I think The American Friend is my second favorite. But then Ripley's Game is probably my third favorite. Um, although I think Malkovich is probably the best Ripley that I've I've ever seen. Well, the but. best Ripley movie for me is Alien. um there is also an adaptation of one of the other parts of the ripley um the the ripley ad as we talked about uh the the five ripley books uh called ripley underground where josh lucas plays ripley and i've never seen that but i'm kind of interested in seeing it now so um all right so that's the first question um and i and i and I'm going to I'm going to shoehorn a recommend. Well, maybe this one's going to be easier because oh I think you can just sort of say a random name and be right. Uh, I'm going to shoehorn a recommendation into everybody now and to you guys to go watch uh, the American Friend and and Ripley's Game, and I think you will both both love both those movies. Um, and Purple Noon, which is the original adaptation of Tom Thomas Ripley, which a lot of people 
think is superior. I disagree. I've seen them both. I think they're both great, but I think this is better. Um, so that's 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 my take. All right, here's the second question. Um, who else, aside from Matt Damon, was being considered for the role of Tom Ripley? You have a number of different possibilities. Edward Norton. That is one of them. Congratulations, Joey. Brad Pitt. Uh, Brad Pitt is not one of them. Really? Bridget, go ahead. Ben Affleck? No. Okay. <laughs> Uh, Put yourself back in the late 90s and the Matt Damon. Leonardo DiCaprio. That's another one of them. Good job. Yeah. Is Tom Cruise on this or is he too old? So Minghella, Tom Cruise was Minghella's first choice to play Ripley. Okay. Um, really? But changed his mind when he saw Goodwill Hunting. <laughs> really? Okay. Okay. Oh, I I don't want to imagine this movie with Tom Cruise. I don't. It's it's. I can see it mostly because I can see... Philip Seymour Hoffman and Philip Baker Hall and Magnolia with Tom Cruise in the same year. Yeah, I don't like. Oh, I don't. Right, think, right. I don't want him in this over Eyes Wide Shut or Magnolia, right? Like I those so. Agreed. Agreed. Um, no, but Mangilla Mangilla apparently wrote this with Tom Cruise in mind, and then saw Goodwill Hunting and was like, "I want that guy." Um, and uh, good for him. I'm shocked, honestly, that Damon did not get an Oscar nomination for this movie. And, um, I think it's probably because the rest of the cast is so good that it kind of drowns him out a little bit. Did this get any Oscar noms or no? It got five. Did it win any? No. Um, did it get big ones or did it get like technical awards? Uh, so Jude Law got one. Um, I believe Gabriel Yared got one as well. Um, Minghella got a Best Adapted Screenplay Award. I think the cinematography was one of them, and I think there's one other. But... Okay, so pretty big. Okay. In, yeah. in a year where yeah. American Beauty just swept everything, right? But Ugh. but it's it's still sort of stunning to look at this and look at Matt Damon's career. I don't know how you guys feel about Matt Damon in general. I kind of love him, but like to see this and still see this i think is his best performance in my mind and and that it's it was so overlooked it's kind of staggering i don't know that's me he's good he's really good does he, does he have any other 99 movies have we done ones with him he has one more we talked about it before we started recording it is the kevin smith movie of that year. oh right oh dogma yes, yes, yes. God, <laughs> talk about movies that i loved when I, I thought i thought i was so fucking smart and cool and edgy like quoting and being really into when i was young well bridget we might have you back for dogma because i have the exact same opinion about it so um, anytime about, um when we do that all right we're gonna move on then to our um our final two questions get ready i think we know get the ready. answer to the first one get ready so let's get ready here you go bridget what is your favorite film from 1999 the talented mr ripley <laughs> do, you, do you have a second favorite one that you oh. did not spend the last hour talking about with us they're actually all i have a lot of favorites uh drop that gorgeous is up there but i'm a cheerleader is up there um yeah it's it's i mean y'all picked a great year to, to spotlight with your podcast there's so many good ones to choose from one or more of those may appear in this round we so... are the first people to ever talk about this year too like we were the ones who noticed it so <laughs> no one's written a book about it no one's done a podcast about it it's just us i'm glad y'all came around and and and, and shed light on this subject for all of us <laughs> <laughs> showed us the light and then bridget the answer might be the same but do you have a favorite movie of all time oh a favorite movie of all time that's uh, i can't answer that it's i i'm such a mo- i'll say that the last movie that i saw that really knocked me out that i'm still thinking about is after sun i watched it, that today i watched it two days ago i'm mm-hmm. watching it again tonight it is i cannot recommend it enough i i was sobbing 
oh my god like it, it what what a what a movie yeah seriously john as someone with with daughters you would probably get hit especially hard by this movie and what's it about it's a guy who is celebrating his 31st birthday on at a turkish resort with his 11 year old daughter and uh they're both going through some stuff yeah it's really I, i've i've i'll say not much happens like plot wise but once you like watch the whole thing it it, it really is like a movie that reveals itself like a Polaroid or something. It really is, is quite lovely and it sticks with you. And I do think going back to our conversation from earlier in this episode, I think that's one that will hold up on future viewings because I think it takes a while to say what Bridget said, I think in a different, like the way that I was thinking about it before, like I didn't know what the movie was for the first half. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden you're like, Oh, I get it now. Okay. And like, there literally is a Polaroid toward the end that develops on screen. You're like, Oh, okay. I get, I, I understand this now. I know why everybody loves this, but like for a while you're like, I don't know, like, this is good, but like, I, what is this about? And then you're like, Oh, that's what that's about. Okay. Will I be okay watching this with children? No, don't <laughs> or not with, with them. Don't watch. No, with not with children. them. But the fact that I have children will it like fucking kill me? No, or, no, no. It's or... not. It's not bad like that. It's okay. just okay. Um, like there's you know nobody dies. Um, so it's not like a. It's not like that it's kind not, of thing. Like, no, it's not like the the fucking Casey Affleck movie. The the, the yeah the by the sea whatever Manchester yeah. by the sea. Um, no. Yeah. No. Okay. Good. Uh, Good recommendation. Thank you, Bridget. Um, no, we never expect anybody to actually answer the question with the actual movie they, you know, of all time, because nobody really has one. Yeah. And everybody who says they do is lying. Usually so, when asked, um, I say clueless. <laughs> it's just easier. There you go. <laughs> yeah. Answer. Right, right, right. No, we've talked about this. We always have like our back pocket like, uh, can I get out of this conversation? Here's what I'm going to say. Uh, <laughs> uh, clueless is a great choice. I, I, I would... I would stand by that one. Um, cool. All right. So before we go, do you, I, you, you've mentioned your various, you, you are the hardest working person in podcasts. Uh, <laughs> it seems like you're everywhere. Um, where should people, what should people subscribe to in their podcast feed? Where can people find you um, if they want to interact with you online, et cetera, et cetera? Yeah, you can check out my podcasts. There are no girls on the internet. You can find that on you know, you know, if you're listening to this, you know how to find a podcast. Uh, you can check out my other podcasts. <laughs> point. Usually it's like we're supposed to say like a whole string of things. And it's like, this is a podcast. They were, they were able to find this. I'm find new it. to this. Like, yeah. <laughs> That's a really great point. I'm going to start saying that. All right. Yeah, keep going. <laughs> you can listen to my podcast with Cool Zone Media um, called Internet Hate Machine. Uh, you can find that also the same way you found this podcast. Sure, you can find it. Uh, <laughs> You can follow me on Instagram at Bridget Marie in DC. I'm also on Twitter kind of sparingly. Actually, I've really dialed up my use of Twitter to talk about only movies and TV. So you can nice. find me there at Bridget Marie. Yeah. yeah, I'm I I'm at this point I'm like, I don't know how useful it's gonna be to talk about anything other than popular culture. And that's what I'm doing. So check me out there. I have never thought about the fact that it's like, look, if you found this podcast, then you know how to listen to podcasts. Yep. So like Type in the words, and you know where you listen to them. And yeah, we we are we are overly uh, overly instructive sometimes, uh, as though people because like sometimes it's your mom, and she's like, it's like we're talking to your mom, and it's like, hey mom, you know how you listen to this? Type in these words. Well, that's mm-hmm. so, another podcast so will come up. Carolyn Todd, if you're listening, you can find my podcast <laughs> on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you get your podcasts. <laughs> We love you, Carolyn Todd. She's an angel. 
Happy New Year. Uh, thank you for joining us. I, I will love to have you back again. Um, I think Dogma is a good choice. Hopefully for all of our sakes, it's way down the road because I have no interest in rewatching that anytime soon. <laughs> it's a slog. I think we all have the same opinion. I think it'll be a fun thing there to talk about. There are so about, many so... good movies from 1999. Let's watch Dogma. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's the best movie from, you know, uh, no, no. Okay. Uh, I have Kevin Smith thoughts and I'm going to hold them. Joey, you're from New Jersey, so you get special treatment as far as that goes. Yeah. He's a local legend, but truly. Uh, Bridget, thank you. Joey, thank you. And Joey, do you know what our next movie is? So I do. And I will say, okay. I will say, you are who you eat and watch out for frogs. Watch out for frogs. And we will see you next time. You make me smile with my Your looks are laughable, unphotographable, yet you're my favorite work of art, is your figure.